Well, good morning to y'all. Good to see y'all out there this morning. As uh, Brother David would say, I hope you got your good shoes on this morning. We're uh, continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and today we're going to read all of chapter 11. So when you find Revelation chapter 11, would you please stand for reading God's word? Okay, Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the outside, the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour... There was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and a time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we love you. We thank you this morning. Thank you for loving us. Lord, as always, we want to be uh, thankful for your blessing us with your, your word. Your word which is totally truthful inerrant, without any mixture of error. Lord, we're, we're so grateful for
for you making yourself known to us. Thank you for salvation through Jesus Christ, which your word informs us of. And by the power of your spirit, uh, you have uh, opened our eyes to, made us heirs, joint heirs with Jesus, made us children, your children, children of the kingdom. Father, as we look at these passage, this passage today and, and consider these things, which are uh, for us uh, often difficult to discern in terms of, uh, uh, of the meaning of each uh, symbol, Lord, help us to stay focused on that which is most evident, that we do indeed know victory in Jesus, that Jesus is Lord over all, and that all of your promises to your people are yes and amen in Jesus. For that we thank you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Well, this chapter does uh, present some uh, special difficulties here, so uh, we'll we'll deal with that as as uh, best we can. And uh, I just pray, you know, pray that God grant to us in all of these things discernment. And as I just prayed just now, um, that we are able to stay focused on the on the main points that are coming across here, and and keep things in their. Uh, uh, their relative, uh, their, their place, um, so that we don't put the, the minors before the majors and the majors behind the minors. Um, it is crystal clear, isn't it, that the, uh, as we were just singing the song, you know, Victory in Jesus, that, that's another way of summing up the message of the revelation, isn't it? Victory in Jesus, because that's, that's what it's about. All right. Um, so let's start. Um, we, we, we've essentially got, I'm, I'm going to set the context a little bit, but we've essentially got, um, Three sections in, in chapter 11 here. And I'm still, so far, um, seems to be working out, but taking it chapter by, by chapter. But, uh, you know, we won't always do that because the, the chapter divisions... We, in, in Sunday school this morning, we were talking about the inspiration of Scripture. The chapter divisions are not inspired, okay? <laughs> Those came in at a much later date, and so sometimes they're very inconvenient. Sometimes verse uh, divisions are very inconvenient. So... Uh, it, it some, to some degree, you, you always have to try to read the Bible pretending like they're not there so, so we just get the flow. Um, but, but anyways, it's, it's been working out for the most part to go chapter by chapter, so that's what we've been tr- trying to do. Um, by the way, there is a, there, uh, the uh, Crossways put out a new uh, version of the... Uh, uh, not a new version, but a, a new uh, edition of the ESV, English Standard Version, which does not have chapter and verse division. So if you want to read it without those, you, you can uh, purchase that and do that. It's kind of interesting. I thought about getting one. But uh, uh, when you go to look for something, you sure are thankful for the chapter and verses, aren't you? <laughs> All right. All right. So um, just a little bit to set the context. Let's remind ourselves of where we are, because if you look at the, uh, as so often is the case, look at the first word uh, here in verse 1, then... That's important. Um, then, and, and it can be translated and or also. So, so he's, he's, he's going on to uh, the next thought, but, you know, that, that word kind of reminds us that we're in the middle of something here. Uh, and where we are is in the second 
woe. Right? W-O-E. Um, you have uh, in, in the Scripture uh, oracles of wheel. Not W-H-E-E-L, but uh, uh, I think it's spelled W-I-E-L. <clears throat> something like that. Don't hold me to that, but I believe that's how it's spelled. Oracles of wheel, um, which are... Um, which is good news. Oracles is, of course, a word from God, right? Uh, speaking uh, as, as God is speaking. A word from God. So you have oracles of will, which is a, a pronouncement of good news, and oracles of woe, which is pronouncement of judgment. And uh, that one uh, we, we kind of get. I mean, we're familiar with those. And we, we see those a lot in the Scripture. Um, and... and uh, you know, I mean, just, well, even the sound of it, whoa, you know, whoa, I mean, that communicates, <laughs> you know, that there's trouble here, there's, there's something uh, impending judgment or, or something like that. All right, so we're in the, the second woe, and, and which is also the sounding of the sixth trumpet. So remember, we, way back in chapter 5, we had, uh, or chapter 4, I should say, we had uh, all focus go to the one who's seated on the throne, and he's holding in his right hand a scroll. And then in chapter 5, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, is, is seen as a lamb who was slain. And by the way, um, that's something else we don't, we don't want to forget as we go through here. Uh, I mean, Lord, help us not forget that. Because that is central to understanding this whole book. What is? The gospel. The gospel that Jesus came and died for us. All right. So there you go. In, ch- in chapter five, you, all attention goes to the Lamb who was slain. All right. It's Jesus, and he goes and takes the scroll from the the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne, God the Father, and the the scroll is sealed with seven seals. And he begins to open the seven seals. And that's, we, we read uh, all, all of that, went through the seven seals. The seventh one, of course, brought us to the seven trumpets. And with, with each of the trumpet sounds, there is uh, usually attached some kind of um, judgment that falls or, or something of that nature. So we're now on the sixth trumpet. We've been through the seven seals, brought us to the, the seventh one, brought us to the sounding of the six trumpets. Now, there are seven angels with seven trumpets ready to blow. And we've been through the first five, and we get through to chapter nine a few weeks ago. Um, and that brings us to the sixth one. That's chapter nine, verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. So, so just to kind of help with, you know, the sections here, context, from chapter nine, verse 13, over to chapter 11, um, what is it, verse, oops, no wonder, I'm looking at the wrong chapter, verse 15, and see there's the next trumpet, then the seventh angel blew, so from chapter 9, verse 13, over to 11, 15, you, you're, you're on that sixth trumpet, which is the second woe, so if you look, look back again, chapter 9, verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two two woes are still to come. All right, the sixth trumpet is the next one. That's where we're at. And then the seventh trumpet, um, which Lord willing will be there by the time we dismiss today. 
um, that is the, the next woe, or the third woe. And you see that down in verse 14, chapter 11, verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So everything from chapter 9, 13 through chapter 11, 13 is the second woe, or the sounding of the sixth trumpet, uh, which also includes the interlude of chapter 10. So you got, uh, for example, it starts out in 914 with the four angels on, at the Euphrates being released, and a third of mankind was killed as part of the second woe, or the sounding of the sixth trumpet. Four angels are released. A third of mankind was killed. You get to the latter part of the chapter there, verses 20 and 21. It says um, that there was no repentance among the survivors. Amazing. Then you get to chapter 10, and there's this interlude we talked about last week. And John sees the mighty angel, um, which we described last week as a vision of glory. And uh, the mighty angel with a little scroll in his hand. And John takes and eats the little scroll in preparation to continue to prophesy. All right? That's chapter 10, verses 11, uh, chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. That's all part of that interlude. And you could probably include in that interlude the measuring of the, the temple uh, in verses 1 through 3 here, chapter 11. So, so far, for the second woe, you got the four angels being released, a third of mankind killed, and then the vision of the mighty angel and John eating the little book. And then John measuring the temple in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. And then next, the ministry of the two witnesses in chapter 11, verses 4 through 12. And then finally, there's a great earthquake, chapter 11, verse 13. At that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So, earlier we had the four angels released, um, the, 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 uh, the, the mounted uh, troops, 200 million mounted troops, third of mankind killed. Now you've got, here you've got uh, the great earthquake and 7,000 people killed. Before in chapter 9, uh, the survivors did not repent. Interestingly here... Um, it doesn't, it doesn't spell out necessarily genuine repentance, but it does say the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Uh, and, and sometimes they would do that, and this is one reason I, I'm, I'm making the point, it doesn't necessarily spell out repentance. Um, sometimes when Jesus would do miracles and things, you, you would get similar language. The people glorified God. And then you move on a little further and you, you know, in the Gospels and you find them walking away. Amazing, isn't it, how, how, how people can, uh, can put on such a show of religion and have no loyalty. So when it gets to the point, for example, where Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, um, he loses most of his crowd because they can't, they can't go with that. But some of them, no doubt, the same people who are glorifying God, so to speak, when he was doing miracles. So it does say here, um, and like I say, it's an interesting contrast to chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, that uh, here the rest, that is survivors, ter- were terrified, terrified <coughs> excuse me, and gave glory to the God of heaven. All right, so what is the meaning of all of this? Um, and, and then, as I said, Lord willing, we'll get to verses 15 through 
19 here in a moment. The imagery here, um, for me, is very difficult. And uh, I know I'm not alone on this because I've, I've read some other, some, you know, I've read some commentators on this. Um, so uh, it's, it's just difficult to pin down. Um, so I think one of the things we need to look for here, and this makes sense to me. You, you weigh it out for yourself. And, I'm, and we've, I've already talked about the sum and we'll be trying to bring it out more as we go along. But I, I think one of the things you need to watch for in Revelation is um, repetitiveness. The same story being told and retold, told and retold, told and retold. Yet, each time, a little different imagery, sometimes a little more detail, a little more information. But it's told and retold, told and retold for the purpose of driving uh, a point home, or maybe several points, but, but in particular, one main point, which I've already mentioned, that is that in the end, God is victorious. He gets all of His people safely home. I always like to say it that way because uh, that's encouraging. You know, a lot of times you, you, if you travel, uh, you know, you, you pray for safety. We have sometimes people in the congregation go on trips, right, and they ask us pray for our safety. And you like to go where you got to go and get back safely, right? Well, as Christians, we, we, we can be assured that when it comes to getting to glory, to our final glorification in the presence of the Lord, uh, He will get us there by His power. Okay, He will get us safely home. So that's kind of the big picture message of the Book of Revelation. Which again, we're going to be um, we're going to be repetitive about. We're going to be pointing that out over and over as we go. It's because of what Jesus did, the Lamb slain, the Lamb who was slain. The one who was and who was dead and who lives again, it's because of what Jesus has done on behalf of His people that we are assured God will get us to our final and full reward. So uh, I probably should say these two things too, just again to to reemphasize them. Um, Where we're headed here is final judgment, just judgment, and full reward. Just judgment and full reward. And that's where we're going. And I, I don't just mean in the story. I mean that quite literally. Um, that's, that's As living beings in this world, that's where we're headed. The whole world is headed to that end. Final judgment or full reward depends on where you are with Christ, right? If you are in Christ or not in Christ, as to which one of those um, lies ahead for you and me. But that's, that's where we're going. All right, so John says here he was given a measuring rod. Now, I want to say this, and I, this imagery comes from Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 43. And I, I think this is a, a direct reference to that. I, mean, I don't think there's any, it's not coincidence. Um, and if you go there, it has to do with a, a promise of preservation, God, God promising to preserve and restore Israel as a nation. And the way that He does that, uh, the way that He gives that assurance, that is, is uh, by me- measuring out the temple. So I guess the idea would be sort of like we, we, we talked about previously with the seal 
just being marked out. In other words, God is bringing judgment, but He knows every dimension of His temple, right? The, the people of God. And He intends to preserve them, which, as I said, is a, is a, is a theme we are, we are seeing running through the book of Revelation. Now, interestingly, Ezekiel says, I saw a man, and he's measuring the temple. Um, John is commanded to do it himself. Now, maybe Ezekiel was seeing John. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> or Ezekiel was seeing some he- heavenly being or a depiction of a heavenly being or uh, a figure in his vision of a man measuring the temple. But here, John is, is uh, included in the play of things. He's, he, is, he is given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, Rise, measure the temple of God and the altar... And those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months. Now, some some uh, commentators seem to think there's a uh, uh, Alan Ladd. Uh, Alan Ladd. I always want to say Alan Ladd. It's George Ladd. Some of you will know who Alan Ladd is, and some of you will be clueless, but that's okay. <laughs> that's not required for good Bible study. <laughs> okay. But George Ladd, on the other hand, can be helpful if you want to check out some of his stuff. <laughs> George Ladd uh, seems to think that there's a, a, a distinction being made here between uh, saved Jews and lost Jews, you know, the elect Jews and, and, and lost Jews. So he, he thinks that prophecy has, uh, is specific in that nature, dealing with Jews. I'm not so convinced of that. But uh, there is certainly a distinction here. Uh, exactly how it is to be understood, I'm not quite sure of. But he tells John to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. So, I think the, the plain and simple point is here that judgment is coming and somebody's going to be preserved. And somebody's, somebody's not. Or, uh, m- maybe even think of it this way, there's, there's, going, to, there's going to be a, a people preserved, but not without going through Tribulation, not without experiencing hardship in this world. Jesus himself says in Luke that the, that the uh, Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot by the nations, by the Gentiles, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Which, um, when I think about that passage over in Luke, I, I think that that's where we are. We're in the time of Gentiles now, seems to me. The time when, um, by and large, Jews have rejected Christ, but the Gentiles are coming in. The gospel is going to the nations, and they're and they're coming to Christ in fulfillment of uh, many Old Testament prophecies. You know, for example, uh, Isaiah saying that uh, he shall be a light unto the Gentiles. Right. So, and and God's word to Abraham that uh, all the nations will be blessed through his seed. So the nations are coming in. It's the, it's the time of the Gentiles. And it does seem to, if you, if you look at Paul and, and uh, Paul's writing in Romans 9, 10, 11, he seems to speak of a time there in the end when 
the Jews will come in. In fact, he says, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, uh, when I say that the Jews will come in, not, not that every single Jew that ever lived will be saved, but, but probably that things will kind of flip-flop so that, generally speaking, the Jews will come, whereas now it's just the opposite. Generally speaking, the Jews reject. So anyway, may, maybe that's uh, part of what's in play here and, uh, and part of what John is, is, uh, is what's being communicated to John here. Um, the city, the temple in this case, is partially... Um, preserved, but then this outer court, the court of the nations, is, is going to be trampled. Uh, they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy for 1260 days. All right? So that's, that's three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, um, and, and we'll see that repeatedly as well, which I think is probably just symbolic uh, and, and maybe uh, just re- a way of referencing. Uh, a relatively short time. I mean, for example, if you, you compare it to the 1,000-year reign in, in chapter 20, three and a half years is, is uh, very short compared to that. So, so it may just be a way of speaking of our suffering here being temporary and relatively short. And even more particularly, not, not just general suffering in the world, but the, but the suffering at the very end when... Satan is unleashed, as it were, and, uh, and the Antichrist, the beast, is uh, making war with the saints and overcoming the saints. All right? This may be just a way of communicating that that's, that's going to be a, 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 a difficult time. That's putting it mildly, I suppose. It's going to be a difficult time, but it's going to be a short time. And because God has measured the temple, He's marked out His people uh, we, we are assured that He will preserve us. Now, again, verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, uh, that almost sounds like their identity is totally cleared up for us, because John says, here's who they are. These are the two olive trees and the two lamp- lampstands. But go back to Zechariah chapter 4 and read that prophecy. That's what he's referring to. And uh, it's still difficult to discern exactly (laughs) what these two lampstands, what these two olive trees represent. All right? So I just tell you, many people take them to be two literal men, two persons at the end time. God sends as witnesses. Uh, I, you know, I find that difficult to, uh, uh, I don't necessarily take that position, but that's certainly a possibility, right? Could be, could be that God um, raises up two men to, to do these kinds of supernatural things that, that are talked about here. In fact, look at, look at the list. Uh, uh, and this is one reason I don't think it's literal, but, um, but, uh, but, it, but it could be. That's a possibility. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. I think that's probably not too literal men. And I don't just, I don't just say that because uh, it seems like an impossibility. Because, I mean, you might say, well, yeah, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem reasonable. It doesn't seem possible. Fire proceeding from the mouth of, of men. Uh, but, of course, God would be able to do that, wouldn't He? He'd be able to make that happen. But this kind of imagery has already been used in previous chapters uh, where we had the, 
the, the, the plague of locusts who were like horses and so forth, fire proceeded out of their mouth as well. So, so I think it's just a way of describing uh, the, the horrific nature of the, of the, uh, the judgment that, that is going to be brought by God through the hands of these witnesses, which, which uh, um, again, what then are they? Well, <clears throat> here's where the repetition comes in. <laughs> at least for my, my part. Um, it, it, it seems to me when you talk about measuring the temple, what is being described there is, is God preserving His people. So He's talking about His people. Here again, the, the, the witnesses. Um, later, we're going we're gonna to see where uh, about us, about believers, He says He overcame them, the, overcame evil, the, the beast, the Antichrist. They overcame them, rather, I'm sorry. By the blood of the Lamb and by what? The word of their testimony, right? Yeah. So the church, that the church overcomes by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Where does the testimony come from? It comes from the mouth, doesn't it? Um, I think this is probably a reference to God's people uh, in the midst of tribulation, um, witnessing, bearing witness to the gospel. Again, some, some people understand it as being two literal prophets. That's certainly a possibility. Okay? It's also uh, possible that it could be uh, referring to you know, something like the Word of God um, or something like the nation, uh, the nation of Israel, an Old Testament witness, and the church, a New Testament witness, two witnesses bearing testimony. Um, those are all possibilities, but, but I think probably, um, again, for my part, uh, I, I, I'm, it just probably just a reference to us enduring, uh, or probably should say the, the, the church in the tribulation, the very end time, um, enduring tribulation and at the same time bearing witness. Like we said many times before, Satan will not be able to overcome the advancement of the kingdom. He will not be able to stop it. It's going to look like he overcomes it for a period. In fact, I better move pretty quickly here to get to that. All right, so... Um, let's go through some of this, and if and, and, and if you have questions about this, we'll try to give uh, time for that tonight. Because I'm not going to, all I'm going to be able to do is hit on it here. So just kind of mark what you want to uh, talk about. Verse five: If anyone would harm them, that is the two witnesses, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. And, and again, these things are no coincidences. The, the, the miracles that are being referred to here are the same ones you read about in the Old Testament, right? Elijah withheld rain. Um, Moses turned with water into blood. Um, so these are the same type plagues. Then verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that arises that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically or spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes... And languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Let's, let's, just, let's just assume for a moment that um, a, a very literal translation, in other words, or interpretation, is correct. And that these are two men. 
Um, it, I find it interesting, you know, because uh, 100 years ago, two men killed in the streets of Jerusalem. There would be no way for the world to watch that, would there? But it would be easy today. I like to say, I don't necessarily hold to that interpretation, but if that is true, we could certainly see how that would easily come to pass, right? The whole world could be watching um, via um, television, uh, internet. Um, so anyway, just, just, just a side thought. But they lay in the street for three days, the whole world is watching. And then in verse 11, after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to, to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So again, uh, whatever these things mean uh, specifically... What is being communicated here is there's going to be a time of great terror, right? And yet, during that time, God's people are going to be preserved. God's people are going going to be delivered. He will get us safely home. Now, verse 14, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. Now, this is where, as I said earlier, all of history is moving. And if you, if you keep in mind, again, that you know, repetition, getting the same story over and over and over, a little bit, time, a little bit uh, more detail each time, a little different image, imagery, um, I, I think this is what is being pictured in the passage we just read, verses 1, or, or at least alluded to, let me say it that way, in, in verses, verses 1 through 13. In other words, God's marked His people out. He's going to preserve them in the midst of tribulation and ultimately bring them into the fullness of the kingdom. God's kingdom will be established and nothing will stop that. So, so by the time you get to the end of the ministry of the two witnesses, what happens? There's, there's, a, there's a great uh, cataclysmic event, or earthquake, and they are caught up. You know, come up here. They are caught up to be with the Lord. What is taking place there? Well, possibly what um, John is describing in verses 15 and 16. That is, the end has come and the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. That is, just Christ emerges triumphant. We emerge triumphant because Christ emerges triumphant. And the 24 elders, remember them? The 24 elders seated around the throne who sit on their thrones before God give the right response to these things. They fell on their faces and worshipped God saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For You have taken Your great power 
and begun to reign. Now again, that's, that's central. That's central to what we just read in the previous part of chapter 11. That's central to the whole book of Revelation. It's central to the Bible. God in His great power has begun to reign. Look at verse 18. This ought to remind you of Psalm 2. Why did the nations rage? The people imagine a vain thing. They set themselves against the Lord and against His Christ. Look at verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came. They couldn't stop it, could they? God is is taking things to its ultimate end. That is, and that includes, just judgment upon the world and the fullness of salvation for His people. In fact, that's in our text. Look at verse 18 again. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, And those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. We've already read about one destroyer. And 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 you think about Old Testament too, how um, God would use nations to bring judgment on another nation, right? And then, usually, He would eventually bring judgment on them for what they did to... Like he would use one nation to bring judgment on Israel, a nation like Assyria or, or uh, Babylon, use them to bring judgment on Israel, and then later judge Assyria and Babylon for what they did to Israel. He would destroy the destroyers. Well, ultimately, who's the destroyer? The ultimate destroyer. Satan, right? And in the end, he as the ultimate destroyer will be destroyed. So the time has come for what? The dead to be judged and the servants to be rewarded. Verse 18. Who are the servants? The prophets, saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. All of of God's people whom He has preserved through this relatively short period of tribulation in this world. He ultimately brings out on the other side Safely, Remember the words of Jesus in John 6, All that the Father has given to me will come to me. He, he was so sure about that <laughs> that He put it in those definite terms. All that the Father has given me. And there He's, he's picturing something, it, it seems, some transaction that has taken place between Himself and the Father in eternity past. All that the Father has given me will come to me. Then in time, they come. We come. In this period of space and time, what, what God ordained in the past, as part of His covenant with His own Son, and I think it is to be understood as a, as a covenant, what God ordained in the past... In time, He brings to pass. And He covenants with those whom He calls, right? Of course, you think about His covenant with Abraham, His covenant uh, or with Noah, His covenant with David, His covenant at Sinai with Moses and the people of Israel. And then Jesus 
says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for you. He covenants with his people. And he keeps his promises. So, so Jesus can say with all certainty, all that the Father has given me will in time come to me. And I won't lose one. But I'll tell you what I will do. I will raise them up at the last day. So, so Jesus just gives us the big picture right there from eternity past to eternity future and essentially says, I will, all that the, every person, every single person that the Father has given me to be in covenant relationship, because the Father is a covenant keeper and will not violate His Word and will not break His promises, every single one of them will come in and I will not reject them, but I will keep them and I will raise them up at the last day to final and full blessing. Well, John is saying, he's, see, he's seeing in his vision, that time has come. The time for the dead to be judged, the time for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, and for destroying the destroyers. And then verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. You say, is there a literal temple in heaven? Well, I don't know. There's something there that God is portraying as a temple here. And I know, I know this. We are the temple of God. We'll be there as the temple of God. And God dwells in and among His people. I'm, you know, read the end of the book. You'll find that in the end of the book. Chapter 20, 21. We are the temple of God. God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of, the, of His covenant was seen within His temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. There, there's that language again you know, it, it, that, that indicates uh, some kind of uh, glorious display. Glorious event. Sometimes it, all, it also indicates a, a judgment, imminent judgment. But it, it always seems to... To, to have in view or, or come with a display of the glory of God. Earlier, you know, we seem sit, seated on the throne and there's, there's peals of thunder and lightning and uh, you know, flashes of lightning and all this. Just display of glory. Here it is again when the Ark of His Covenant is seen. Well, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it was, it was a box. It was a box in which... Um, Moses put the law, the covenant between God and the people of Israel. And it also had the manna, uh, samples from the manna there, Aaron's staff that budded. But even more than that, it represented God's power and presence. Or I should have said that backwards. Uh, both of those are true, but said that backwards. It represented God's presence in power, so that they would literally carry it out before their armies when they went to battle. Singing, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Because God's presence was there on the Ark of the Covenant. 
And at, at the top of it, without going into too much detail here, because we don't have time for that, that's for sure, um, but was the mercy seat on the top. And in the New Testament, we learn that that is Jesus. Now, that term is used. writer of Hebrews uses that term. It's, it's the same word, propitiation. Um, the King James translates it mercy seat. And Jesus is our mercy seat. You have God's Word, God's law within the ark, and then, of course, God in His presence above, and, and uh, you know, it's a covenant between God and man. But between is the mercy seat, Jesus, who became a curse for us. He's our mercy seat, our propitiation, and took on Himself the wrath that you and I deserve. To make all of this a reality, so that he could say with all assurance that all that the Father has given me, I will raise up at the last day. Why? Because he's the Lamb slain. He's the one who, who is, but who was dead, and is alive forevermore. Because he came and died for his people so that we might live. Because he's a covenant keeping God. And I think that's the reason that all of a sudden the focus turns to the Ark of the Covenant here. To remind us that God is a covenant keeping God. And you know what? In His church, in the temple, He is present in power. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. His kingdom will be established in its fullness. Judgment, just judgment, will come. Full reward for God's people will come. It's sure. And while the suffering we endure now, and some endure much, is temporary and relatively short length of time. The fullness of blessing and reward and the presence of God will be forever. Nothing can change that. Nobody can stop that. Because God is determined to do it. And He's a covenant-keeping God. Would you stand, please? Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word and for these assurances that You protect Your people, that You complete what You start, and that You don't bring projects halfway and drop them, but that You, you, you bring us all the way and get us home safely in the end. Lord, we're thankful today as Christians that we have the promise of an eternity with You as a reality, not, not, a, not a, a myth or fairy tale ending of a story, but as a reality because You sent Your own Son to take our penalty upon Himself. He died so that we might live because you keep your promises.
Again, we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.